And students, welcome to Homecoming Week. Yeah. I sense that some of you might be a little paranoid, and I hope that uh, you're working through that a little bit, working through that a little bit. Welcome to not only Homecoming Week, but the start of a new series of messages on Wednesdays centered around our theme of hunger and thirst. And uh, we've decided to just go through the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And so I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, I know you've got it on your phones and tablets and everything. I know that. If that works for you, that's fine. If not, you know, bring a Bible and have it with you in your lap. And we will spend some time talking about the Scriptures as it relates to our lives as followers of Christ from the Beatitudes. And it's been a few years since we've done a series like this. We've invited the all-star team to participate. And so over the next few weeks, you'll hear from Dr. Gustafson, Dr. Myers, you'll hear from the Kratz, you'll hear from Dr. Castor and Dr. Peterson and Dr. Inglesland as we go through each of the Beatitudes on Wednesdays. So the all-star team is assembled. Uh, We are ready to go. I hope that you are as well. Fair enough? And it occurs to me that um, my preaching professor is sitting in the second row by himself. So are there any students that would want to fill the front seats here? Come on down. Come on. Come on. You can do it now. There you go. There's one student who's coming to the front. Come on. You can do it. Yes. Now Dr. Peterson is not alone. Dr. Myers is not alone. See that? Look at that. Oh, isn't that sweet? Oh, there you go. Everyone's got a friend. We all have buddies now. Man, it's getting tight in that row right there. All right. So what do you want is my question for us this morning. What do you want? Some of you came to college as undeclared majors because you just don't know what you want. How many undeclared majors do we have in the room today? I see a few of your hands, yeah. I started college as an undeclared major because I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. Fortunately, while this was not available when I was a college student, it is available to you now because in 2012, there arose a new subfield in psychology called wantology. It is the study of what people want. And for three or $400 an hour... That's the real number. You can go and sit with a wantologist who will tell you what you want. So you may think, college student, that you, you want to drop out of college. You go see a wantologist, and he or she will tell you, no, you don't want to really drop out of college. What you really want is to change majors. And so a wantologist might be a helpful uh, person for you to secure their services. Now, if I go to a wantologist and I pay 300 bucks, I hope the wantologist has the insight to see that what I want is my $300 back. <laughs> but we struggle to know what we want. Now, I'm going to confess some things today to you. What I want are shortcuts. I want the microwave version of everything. So, for example, I want to be physically fit without exercise. Can I get an amen on that one? 
I'm working on that. It just seems to me that someone should invent a good-tasting potato chip that when I eat it, I lose weight, right? So I can sit on my couch and eat all the potato chips I want and lose weight in the process. That's what I want. I want that shortcut, right? I want to play Rachmaninoff piano concerto without ever practicing piano, right? I want that shortcut. I would really want to have intimate friendships without vulnerability. I want to have a mental acuity without sleeping. I want to be holy as a person without sacrifice. And I really want to be a godly, spiritually mature person without brokenness. Last spring, as I sat with some students, we talked about things that we want. And one of the things that we observed, that we identified in our conversation, is that whatever we want, when it comes to our spiritual lives, we don't want it enough. I mean, we don't want it enough to make the serious sacrifices to get what we say we want. I mean, it's easy for us to gather in this space and to sing the songs and say, I really want you, God. But it's a a whole different thing to make sacrifices, to demonstrate the want, and to go deep with God. Those sacrifices, we're not sure we want. In those arenas, we want shortcuts. We want the Bible app to just send us the quick verse and feel content with that. Rather than going deep with a deep hunger and thirst that motivates and pushes us toward the God that we say we love. I want the shortcut. So over the next few weeks in chapel, we're going to talk about what you and I want. What is our true appetite when it comes to spiritual matters? And where it all begins is in Matthew chapter 5 with the first beatitude. Now let me give you a little bit of the structure of the beatitudes before we kind of dive into verse uh, 3. The structure, kind of the big picture of the beatitudes. There are eight sayings that Jesus makes and they all begin with the word blessed. Blessed are these kind of people and blessed are these kind of people. And the word blessed, translated in Latin, is beatitude. It's not be-attitude versus do-attitude. The word is beatitude. It's a Latin word that means blessing, which means happy or fortunate, and we'll come to that in a moment. But there are eight sayings. If you look at those eight sayings, you'll see that they're all in the present tense. They're all in the present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. Blessed are. These are things, traits, that Jesus expects from all of his believers at all times. This is, these are not things that Jesus expects from believers on day one, but not on day 100. There are no exceptions. To be people of the kingdom... We are to be people like this. 
But not only that, notice in the big structure, a wide-angle lens, that the Beatitudes begin and end with the same promise. Theirs is the kingdom of God. We call that inclusio in uh, literary function. That is to say it begins and ends with the same statement. It bookends the Beatitudes. And it shows us these qualities are to be um, approached as a unit. Not so much individual, though we'll see them in individual. But this is to be taken as a whole. These are the attributes, if you will, of God's people. Notice that the promises of the Beatitudes, the promises, when we look at the first one and the last one, the promise of each of them is in the present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is present tense. There's the promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But if you look at the next, those, those middle section, those six in the middle, notice those. Those are all future tense. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And there is a sense within the Beatitudes that we are experiencing a foretaste of something coming. That while we experience the kingdom of heaven now, a present tense, there is yet more to come. And that while the com- there will be comfort for those who mourn, it's not the ultimate comfort. There will be an ultimate comfort in the future. There's a future tense sense of the Beatitudes. So now, let's look at the first one. And I want to look at the first one by picking up the context in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, the context, just at the end of the chapter, says this, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So that's the nature of the message. He's he's talking about a king and the reign of that king here on earth. And Jesus is sharing that message and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and the region across the Jordan even followed him. Imagine now the frenzy of people gathered around Jesus when the news gets out that he's doing these miracles and he has this amazing teaching of the kingdom that no one had heard before. And as they're hearing this message, it's authenticated by healings. And so people started bringing others, and they're watching, and the crowd begins to swell. And there are people on the outskirts watching and looking in. There are the the skeptics and the doubters. There are the people filled with faith, the people of need and brokenness. And they're all gathering around this person of Jesus, and it must have felt like a circus around him as he traveled from place to place. I'm reminded occasionally, if, if you're watching YouTube, you'll see these videos from Dude Perfect. Have you heard of those, those guys? Yeah, yeah. Some of you are celebrating. We had our own Dude Perfect uh, experience here in this gymnasium uh, a few years ago when some of our students 
sat, one of our students sat in the middle uh, with his back to the basket on a seat, threw the ball over his head and made a basket. It took them all day to do it. But you know, you know the moment when that happens and the ball goes through the hoop? If you watch those videos, right, there's this instant celebration, right? I mean, they've been doing it for like three hours. In fact, one time I was walking upstairs just right here, and there were a group of students up here, and they were throwing the ball off the wall and trying to make it into the basket. And he said, yeah, I did it by accident last night, but I didn't have it on video. So I'm recording it today, and they're up there for hours, you know, throwing the ball, trying to get it. But the moment the ball goes through the hoop, everyone celebrates as a loud holler, and it's like, woo, and everyone high five, yeah, okay, this is awesome. And I almost imagine that is the scene, as people would bring a crippled person before Jesus, and as they set him down, they're watching, what is Jesus going to do now? And they're waiting and Jesus touches the person, and there's healing, and everyone high fives, and they're like, yeah, he did it, you know. And there's a celebration of joy and hope and anticipation that's all emerging right there in that moment. And if you're an onlooker, you're saying, what's different about Jesus than me? Because I look like Jesus. I, I wear the same clothes as Jesus. What's different about him? How did Jesus do that, right? How did Jesus... What did Jesus say? Like, did he do something with his voice that, that caused this person? Like, was it not just, like, God heal? Maybe it's a double-syllable God. Like, God duh heal. Maybe? Could it have been a touch? Maybe it was the way Jesus waved his hand. Whatever it is, if you're an onlooker and you see it happening, you say to yourself, I want that. And I never want to leave that. I want a piece of that. I want to be a part of that campaign on the planet Earth. And no doubt, messages is spreading. You've got to come and see this. Because this is not like anything we've ever seen before. So Jesus, would you please tell me how to be a part of that kind of kingdom? Now, chapter 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, Matthew uses that phrase a couple times. Later in the book of Matthew, it's when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Here, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. I think there are reasons why Matthew chose this kind of setting for this uh, sermon. Maybe it's because Moses came down from the mountain and gave the Ten Commandments and Moses was the leader of people and now there's a new leader and he's coming and he's a new king. And he's coming from a mountain too. And his disciples came to him because that's what disciples do. <laughs> disciples go to Jesus. And when Jesus is beginning to teach a group of people start to gather around, and there's these concentric circles around Jesus, right? His disciples, they're close. They're near him. They really want to hear what Jesus is going to say about the kingdom. And others are watching on, and Jesus begins to teach. I take it to mean that Jesus began to teach them. He's teaching his disciples who are near him, but others are listening in. 
And those people that really want to know what the kingdom is like, they want to really be a part of that. Like, what did you do with your voice and wave of your hand and this teaching with authority? Jesus, I want in. I do want that. Here's Jesus' first line. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed. Blessed is the first word in the phrase. It means to flourish. Some translators have the word happy. Maybe it's satisfied. It's it's hard to really capture it in English. But it means not just a circumstantial happiness like Today I woke up and there's sun and I'm happy. But it's a state of being satisfied or a state of being flourishing, having favor on you. The word blessed means to approve. To approve, to to be in a position where you're approved by God and you know it. That's the state of flourishing and being satisfied. The, the first century, when they would have heard Jesus say, blessed, when his first word came out, they'd say, this is it. This is the moment. He's going to tell me how to do what he did. I'm going to get in on this magical system that Jesus has inaugurated. This is going to be awesome. Blessed, that's it. I want that. I want that. Blessed. And then Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Kind of sucks all the wind out of it, doesn't it? Word poor means to beg, to descend, to fall. The Greek word is patokos. It means to be empty to the point of begging. It means to abandon reputation, to leave behind the appearance of sophistication. It means to embrace the indignity of a beggar due to the intensity of the need to survive by an empty hand. It means to be spiritually bankrupt. Nothing in the account Interesting idea, isn't it? To think that the first principle of the kingdom, where it all begins, is with emptiness. It's interesting, too, that Jesus actually had commanded the Greek language and could have used a different word here. The word that Matthew uses is patokos. There's another word, and it's called pentecross. Pentecross means to be poor also. So there's two words for poor in the original language. Patokos, which means to be empty, to be poor, to be in need, and to beg. And then there's Pentecost, which means to be poor, but to not beg. It means to be empty, but to hunt through the trash can to find the food. Survive by hard work, by muddling through. Protect the reputation. Be poor, but refuse any help. We don't like the idea of being or appearing helpless. 
So what we do is we fake it. I'm not really poor. I, I can get by on my own. Please don't, don't offer. I don't need your help. Thank you anyway. I can get by. Such a person upholds the deepest fear of being found out to be a beggar. It strikes me that some people admit their bankruptcy and others disguise it. Jesus here wants people that admit their bankruptcy spiritually. The word that I have adopted for the state of muddling through life Never admitting our bankruptcy is the word pretender. You know what a pretender is. You know, it's like a mannequin that just has a pose. It looks like life. It's shaped like life. It's got fashion designer clothes on, but there's no life there. That's a pretend life. Confession number two or three or wherever I'm at. My pretender is alive and well. I know it when you think, you know, if you're a student and you think of all of us, you know, grown ups that work at Crown and, you know, talk about the Greek words in the Bible, you know, like we're, we're supposed to have, have it all together. We're not supposed to have any of those. And I want you to know, I don't have any of the external stuff. But then I'm reminded of Isaiah 64, 6. That says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And sometimes I think I am the mannequin. I'm dressing up my life in filthy rags pretending that they're righteousness, and I want all of you to really believe that I'm not broken. And I want all of you to believe that I can get by, and I'm not helpless. That I can get by without anyone else. Do you do that? Are you ever a pretender? And I've learned from years of doing this, because I want you to know the first time I identified myself as a pretender was many years ago when I was a pastor of a church, and it was not going well. I was not going well, and it was hard. Life was hard, and I sunk into a, a season of depression, and I realized I was tired of pretending. You know what I'm talking about, right? We do, right? When we, we act like we're more spiritual than we are, when we pretend that we really care about what the Bible says, when we don't, we don't pick up the scriptures. We pretend that prayer is important to us when it's not really important to us. Listen, I don't know how it works for you, but one of the hardest questions for me to answer is when someone says to me something like this, hey, what did you read in your Bible today? Because <laughs> I have one or two responses and neither of them are really great. I could give you the chaplain answer and say, well, 
um, if I did read my Bible, I'll say, well, I read, you know, 1 Samuel chapter 9. And then I'd walk away feeling proud. <laughs> I read today, and they asked me, and I was able to give them the spiritual answer. Well, that's, that's the pretender, right? Being proud about, okay. Or I can give you the fake answer, or I can give you the real answer and say, I didn't read at all, which that doesn't feel good. So, just end up with shame. See, it's exhausting to be a pretender. And I think when we strip everything away and we look ourselves in the mirror, what we really want is to finally say, I am empty. And I don't have it all figured out. And my life isn't clothed with fashion designer clothes, but maybe with filthy rags. And I'm still in progress. See, the, the critical words for a beggar is I need. Not I won't, that's the rebel, but I need. And to get to that point of I need, we must descend into desperation. We say, God, you are my only hope. Blessed are the people whose only hope is God. For theirs, for theirs is the kingdom. And if we're going to go through the Beatitudes and we're going to talk about hungering and thirsting and mourning and meekness and pure in heart, and if we're going to talk about all of those things, it begins right here today at Crown in this chapel when we as a community say, God, our only hope is you, and we come in the only posture we can, and that is with empty hands before you. Because only when we're empty can we then be filled. So let's step outside of the pretender. Let's stop acting like we got it all together. And let's, as a community, come before God, empty hands, open heart, and say, God, you are our only hope. I can't without you. Will you stand with me? And would you be so bold as to simply lift up an empty hand, lift up your hands. and If you want to just today, don't worry about your neighbor. Don't worry about that person. Don't worry. Today, if you were to say, God, I admit I am poor in spirit and I want a fresh renewal of your work in my life because I can't do it on my own. My only hope is you. Just the form of a beggar Lifting up empty hands before God. And just assume that posture and say, God, I need you. I need you. Let me pray for us. Father, here we are. Here we are. 
beggars before you? Would you do something fresh and new in our lives as we admit our emptiness, as we admit that we can't do this life without you, that apart from you, we can do nothing, Jesus. And we are empty beggars. Would you now come and fill your people? And would you use these Wednesdays in the coming weeks to shape not only a person, but shape a community of people who live under the authority of the king. For those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We want to walk with you, Jesus. Be our guide in this journey toward the blessed life. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus. And all the beggars said, amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next Wednesday. We'll see you Friday, but we'll see you next Wednesday for sure.